chapter 13. We're going to look specifically at verses 18 through 21 this morning. According to an organization that tracks global persecution of Christians, the number of Christians around the world that have been killed for their faith this year has increased by 60%. Take Nigeria for an example. Just in Nigeria, Christians are targeted by Boko Haram and others, members of the Islamic State. More than 2,200 Christians have been murdered this year. On July 5th of this year, bandits entered Bethel Baptist High School, which is a boarding school, and kidnapped 140 students. On October 31st of this year, armed men entered Emmanuel Baptist Church in Kaduna, Nigeria, shot five people, killing three of them, seriously wounding the other two, and took 61 people hostage. It's widely known by the bandits that the, that there's no fear of the local officials. They know that even if they are arrested for kidnapping and murder, that the local officials will never prosecute them. That's merely one country. Around the world, you add to those other types of environments and the killings and the kidnappings, the multiple reports of beatings, rapes, imprisonments, and other forms of persecution, and it's global and it's extreme. But it's not the first time. Persecution of Christians is a long-standing tradition, in fact, as long as there's been Christians. In the 1920s and 30s, Joseph Stalin attempted to stamp out Christianity from Russia. Between 1936 and 1938, a time known as the Great Purge, some 750,000 Christians were executed. In 1815, in communist Albania, they were putting Christians in prison. The following year, they rounded up more than 6,000 Christians and killed them and imprisoned them. And that imprisonment of Albanian Christians continued up until 1991. In 1793, near the end of the French Revolution, a ten-month reign of terror, including the the intent to eradicate Christianity from France, over 17,000 Christians were executed and untold thousands died in prison. During that time, French atheist Voltaire said that within 100 years, Christianity would be swept from existence into oblivion. Just before he died, he wrote this, quote, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd the blo- and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in the noble enterprise of extirpating the world of this infamous superstition. By the way, some 50 years after the death of Voltaire, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and stored Bibles in it. During the five-year reign of Mary Tudor, between 1553 and 1558, she had Christians burned at the stake. Fox's Book of Martyrs lists 312 individuals who were either burned at the stake or hanged in her orders. Around 300 AD, the Roman Emperor Diocletian ordered churches to be destroyed and all copies of scriptures to be burned. He made a decree that if anyone had a copy of the scripture, they were to uh, present it to be destroyed, and if anybody was found in possession of a copy of the scripture, they would be burned at the stake. Two years into the campaign, Diocletian 
proclaimed, quote, I have completely exterminated the Christian writing from the face of the earth, end quote. The Roman Empire declared open season on Christians between A.D. 65 and A.D. 313. There's no way to know the total number of Christians that were killed during that time or imprisoned during that time under the wicked emperors like Nero and Diocletian and Domitian. For nearly 250 years, Rome tried to rid the empire of Christians. They put them in prison, they burned them at the stake, they used them as sport, they killed them in the Colosseum with gladiators and lions, other ways. Nero tried to uh, end Christianity very early when he had the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul killed, early, mid-60s. Herod Agrippa had the brother of, of John killed, James, in 44 A.D., trying to destroy Christianity. The Jews tried to stop it early on, shortly after the crucifixion of Christ, by threatening Peter and John. And Satan himself tried to stop Christianity by compelling the crowd to call out for a murder to be released rather than Jesus, and to call out for Jesus to be crucified. The religious and societal leaders of Israel desperately tried to discredit Jesus and stop any momentum that he had. There was great opposition from the most powerful men in Israel. They argued with Jesus. They argued about Jesus. They opposed him. They conspired against him. They plotted to destroy him. And they eventually killed him. From a human perspective... It's amazing that Christianity ever made it past the first century. But Jesus said that the Christian faith would impact and influence the entire world. God will build his kingdom and nothing will prevent it. That's the message to his disciples in Luke chapter 13. It's a message to the critics and it's a message to us. And he gives us two parables in this passage between verses 18 and 21. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. The first parable speaks of the amazing growth of the kingdom. And the second, the amazing influence. The permeating influence of the kingdom. So we start with the growth of the kingdom. That's the parable of the mustard seed. Verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, so he was saying, this is Jesus speaking. In my Bible, he's speaking in red. (laughs) What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? The term kingdom of God appears 52 times in the gospel. The term kingdom of heaven only appears in the gospel of Matthew. And it's synonymous with the kingdom of God. It appears 32 times in Matthew. Those terms, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, are only used in the New Testament. Combined with the... Other times that the word kingdom is used to refer to the reign of Christ, it appears 138 times in the New Testament, and 109 of those are in the Gospels. So clearly the Gospels are about the kingdom. Arriving at a complete definition of what Jesus meant by the kingdom is a book-length project. A lot of trees have died and a lot of ink has been spilled for people to write books on what it is to be the kingdom, what it means to be the kingdom. So I want to give you a 
tutorial this morning on what the kingdom is so that these parables will make sense. Because if we don't understand that part, the parables don't make any sense. So I need to help you understand what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So we've got to start at the incarnation where Jesus clothed himself in human flesh. And he came to this earth for the purpose of seeking and saving that which was lost. Among the purposes he came, that was at the top of the list, and he said, I come to seek and to save the lost. I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. He meant that who were, those who are lost, those who are unbelieving, he would give his life as a sacrifice for them because we are all under condemnation apart from Christ. He would shed his blood for the forgiveness of their sins. All who confess him as Lord would be adopted into the family of God and be given the Holy Spirit to indwell them. In doing so, Jesus was purifying for himself a people for his own possession. These are my people. These are my brothers and sisters. These are children of God. Though he came to earth as a slave, in the form of a slave, he was the king. He's the rightful heir of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne. He was rightfully acknowledged as a king at his birth. As we enter into this Christmas season, we'll... You'll hear songs, we'll sing songs about Jesus being the king. If you watch any of the Christmas specials, I recommend the Peanuts one. At least you hear the gospel at the end, where Linus will quote Luke chapter 2, unless they edit it out again. And it will proclaim Jesus as king. And the day is coming when all creation will acknowledge Jesus as king, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That point, Jesus will rule until all things are subjected to him. And then he will hand everything over to the Father and subject himself to the Father so that God is all in all. Now we can't fully understand the reason for the incarnation, the coming of Christ, until we understand some of his kingdom purposes. Jesus came to defeat his enemies. All of his enemies, not just some of them, but all of them. He came to reign over everything. He came to be king. He came to establish his kingdom. And not just any kingdom, but a kingdom like unlike anything else that anybody has ever known. A kingdom unlike anything that's ever been mentioned in this world. In fact, in our reading in Luke chapter 11 this morning, we read about what that kingdom will look like. It will be an everlasting kingdom. Death will be exterminated. Righteousness and peace will prevail. The kingdom encompasses the entire earth and all humanity. And a simple walk through the Gospels reveals the kingdom purposes of Jesus. When John the Baptist began his ministry, the message that he preached was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus began his public ministry, his message was exactly the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of God is at hand. The message that Jesus preached was accompanied by multiple signs to prove that he was that coming king. And in fact, Matthew 4.23 says, 
Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So the message of the goodness or the good news of the kingdom accompanied by the healing was not just a sign that his message was authenticated, but was a preview of what the kingdom would look like. The healings were the sign that he was the Messiah King. And there are references to Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, and they are a glimpse of what kingdom life would be like. Later on, Jesus would send the twelve out on their first missionary trip. They were only go to the Jewish cities, and he gave them the message. Preach this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message they were to preach. After Jesus was rejected by the Jewish leaders, the societal leaders, Jesus continued to teach about the kingdom. Only now, he spoke about it in parables. Specifically in Matthew chapter 13, after being accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan, Jesus' message became parables. And he would speak in such a way that the general population did not understand what it was he was saying. And the disciples came and asked him, Why do you speak in parables? And he said to them in Matthew thirteen eleven, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So to the apostles, to the disciples, Jesus is saying, You get to understand these now these mysteries, these things that were unknown beforehand, I will explain to you, but to those who have rejected, they don't get that opportunity to understand. So the use of the parables, specifically in Matthew 13, it's not true of all parables, but specifically in Matthew 13, the use of the parables was an act of judgment against unbelieving Israel. God was taking away the light that they had been given. They'd been given the light of Christ and they rejected it, so now it was being removed from them. There had clearly been a shift in the offer of the kingdom. That's what Jesus was referring to as the mysteries. The mysteries are something that was unknown until Jesus reveals it, or God reveals it. So there's this shift. At the Last Supper, that night that Jesus is betrayed, He tells His disciples after having the first communion service, He said, I will not eat the bread or drink of the cup until I do it again in the kingdom. After he was raised from the dead, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says, he was also presenting himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then a few verses later, Acts chapter 1 verses 6 and 7, so, so when they had come together, they were asking him, that's the disciples, saying, Jesus, or saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times of the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So even up to that point, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, the apostles think of the kingdom as Israel having its own entity, being its own entity again, out from under the oppression of the Romans, out from under Roman authority and being their own kingdom. And that's what they were still expecting. Jesus came to be king. There's no question about it. I and mean, he's rejected by the people of Israel. They did not want him to be their king. He wasn't the kind of king they wanted for their kingdom. However, their rejection of him 
and even their crucifixion of him could not prevent him from being the king God wants him to be. He is still going to be king. He is still king. He will come to this world one day and he will take over. He will overcome all of the enemies and he will usher in his kingdom. And it will be a global rule and no one can prevail against it. And no one can stop it from happening. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. The rejection of Jesus by the leaders of Israel did not alter the kingdom plan of God. In fact, it was the kingdom plan of God. It was always God's plan for the kingdom. The rejection of Jesus allowed for the revelation of the mystery aspect of the kingdom, this plan that had not previously been revealed, which ultimately we know from the rest of the New Testament was for the offer of the kingdom to be extended to Gentiles. As a Gentile, thank you. I appreciate that. The parables, for the most part, reveal this phase of the kingdom plan. The parables outline this new direction for God's kingdom, this now mystery, this previously unknown, that it, that serves between this interval in time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Previously, Jesus was openly offering the kingdom to the nation of Israel, and when they rejected him and accused him of being in partnership with Satan, the offer then changed. The message of the kingdom dramatically shifted to using parables as an act of judgment. Though the kingdom would not be set up at the first coming of Christ, God is still gathering citizens for the kingdom, or what Matthew 13 and other passages say, sons of the kingdom. So let me just kind of walk through. I know we're in Luke chapter 13, but it parallels much of what happens in Matthew 13 where we have more parables. So I want to walk through them real quick for you to see how they all fit. During the inter-advent period, that is between the first and second comings of Christ, the gospel is still given. Many people believe, most do not. That's the parable of the soils. Some seeds fell on the road and were taken away. Some fell among the thorns and died out. Some fell among the stones and died out. Some fell on the good soil and produced fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 full. That's the gospel being presented during this inter-advent period of time. Some will believe, most will not. Those who believe are called sons of the kingdom. Those who do not remain sons of the evil one. This is the parable of the tares among the wheat. God planted good seed, it grew wheat. The enemy planted wicked seed, it became the tares. The tares are the sons of the evil one, the wheat are the sons of God. As the good news of the kingdom spreads, this is the parable of the leaven, others will see the extreme value of the kingdom and for joy they'll sell everything they have to make citizens of that kingdom. That's the pearl of great price and the hidden treasure. The reason anyone receives the kingdom is the sovereign work of God, and that is found in a parable in Luke, or Matthew, or sorry, Mark, I'll get it eventually. I only had four choices. And that's the parable of the seed that grows spontaneously or secretly. In the end, the kingdom will be 
very large. It will include every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. And that's the parable of the mustard seed. When Christ returns to establish his kingdom on the earth, he'll remove those who are not sons of the kingdom, the parables of the tares among the wheat and the dragnet. That's all the parables of Matthew 13. It all points to the kingdom and what God is doing there. So when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he is speaking of his complete rule and reign over the entire earth. He's not speaking about a localized reign in Israel. He's not speaking of Israel being its own entity anymore. He's speaking of the rule and reign of Christ over the whole earth, the sovereign rule of Christ. Now, most of the Jews, including the disciples before Pentecost, could only conceive of the kingdom of Israel being their own nation. Like the judges in the Old Testament, they believed that God would send someone that would free them from Roman oppression and they could finally be their own nation among all the other nations. But that's not what Jesus meant by the kingdom. Now they rejected Jesus because they were not thinking of a king, a Messiah who could be crucified or who would rise again and who would ascend to heaven and return sometime later to establish the kingdom. But it's always been God's purpose for his son to gather citizens for the kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without a king. You can't have a kingdom without a realm. You can't have a kingdom without citizens. So God has been establishing and calling and and calling to himself citizens for his kingdom. To populate the kingdom when Christ returns to rule and reign. For that reason, Jesus told us as his followers, you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. We are pointing people to the kingdom. Jesus told Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is life in the kingdom. They'd be made citizens of the kingdom. Just before Jesus ascended back to heaven... He told the apostles, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. What are they witnessing about? They're witnessing about the kingdom. They're they're telling people how to become citizens of the kingdom. That's what we do. God's plan has always been global rule. So the natural question that comes from that is, how could God's kingdom plan happen given the handful of non-influential men who were the followers of Christ and the extreme opposition to him and his message. If there were so many people against him, given the fact that there was just a handful of ragtag guys following him, how could this ever accomplish anything? The parables of Luke 13, like those in Matthew 13, come on the heels of the rejection of Christ by the religious leaders. They accused him of being empowered by Satan. The synagogue official accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. So they see Jesus as working for Satan and breaking the law. So Jesus speaks with parables as an act of judgment. So that seeing they will not see and hearing they cannot hear. Jesus uses the parable to answer an unwritten question. Given the core of Jesus' followers, are fishermen, tax collector, nobodies, and the fact that the most powerful men in Israel have rejected Jesus, how in the world can these kingdom plans amount to anything? 
Now, other than Jesus, none of them are great orators, specifically at that time. They were not politically powerful men. They were not social influencers. They say nothing tweet-worthy, nothing that will go viral. Peter is more likely to be a meme than a mover and a shaker. (laughs) With both the Roman government and the Jewish leaders opposing Jesus and his followers, how how would this movement last, let alone produce a global impact? Well, here we are 2,000 years later. 6,785 miles from where it started. Speaking a very different language in a very different culture at a very different time. Worshipping Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we strive to spread that message around the world. In fact, even back to where it started. We seek to proclaim the good news of the kingdom around the world so to as many people as possible. And God is daily, supernaturally adding kingdom citizens. That's the point of the parable in Luke chapter 13. Verse 19 is the parable. He said, what shall I compare the kingdom to? This rule and reign of Christ to? He said, it's like a mustard seed. Which a man took and threw into his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air nested on the branches. Now some see this parable, they've interpreted this parable as a corruption of the church. They do that for a couple of reasons. One, mustard seed is the tiniest seed that was used in Palestine at that time. It's not the tiniest seed in the world, but the tiniest that was used in Palestine at that time in your garden. And mustard trees or plants grew to maybe six or eight feet. Rarely would they reach 12 feet and never with branches strong enough for birds to come and nest in. So they see this growth as of the church as freakish. Or this growth of the kingdom, rather, as freakish. And they say that it's corrupted. That's why it's, it's abnormal. Uh, not in a good way. And they combine that with the birds. Because the parable of the seed and the sower. Some seed fell on the road and the birds of the air came and ate them. And Jesus will later say that's Satan. Taking it away. So they said, well, every time birds are used, it must be referred to Satan. Well, that's a problem because birds fed Elijah and they weren't, wasn't Satan feeding Elijah. So birds aren't always used in a demonic way. Just happened to be in that one parable. So some have seen the growth of the kingdom as freakish and Satan at work within the church or in the kingdom rather. But what Jesus is saying here is the kingdom is going to start out very small. A very insignificant thing. It's going to look like nothing. In comparison to everything else, it's the tiniest. But it's going to grow. And it's going to involve and encompass the entire world. It's going to start with an insignificant group of people. And it's become so large that birds from all over the world or people from every corner of the world will rest in its branches. Will be part of that tree. The growth will exceed all expectations. The kingdom will become larger than anyone could have imagined. Remember, Israel's thinking strictly of Israel. 
They're thinking of their their borders north to south and east to west being their own nation. That's all they're thinking. They're not thinking beyond that. And Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom is going to be so large that people from all over the world are going to be part of it. God is going to establish His kingdom in such a way that the only way to explain it is He did it. Now this parable is to be a source of encouragement. First to the disciples who are literally arguing with themselves, among themselves, of which one of them gets to be second and third in the kingdom. Which one of them is most important because they're still thinking earthly. They're not thinking beyond Israel. This group of fishermen, tax collectors, and nobodies that that have no influence in the world. So Jesus is saying, listen, I know the world is hostile against you, but the kingdom plan is already done. It's going to grow. It's going to be huge. It's going to be beyond anybody's expectations. It's encouragement, secondly, for the early church that faced persecution and, and fierce opposition. Early church leaders were killed. It serves as encouragement to know that the labor that they put into this is not in vain. But God will accomplish His purpose. He'll build His kingdom, His kingdom in nothing will prevail against it. And third, it's encouragement to us. Folks, listen to this. I want you to understand, no government will stop the church from growing. No mandates can stop the church from accomplishing God's purpose. No laws, no opposition, no persecution will ever keep God from building His kingdom. It reminds us that the results are really not up to us. It's already been determined by God. Yes, we are to work hard. We are to do our jobs. But God is going to cause the growth of His kingdom and the reaching of citizens for His kingdom as He desires. God is going to establish His kingdom. And we're going to look at the world and say that doesn't make any sense given this world. That the kingdom should grow. I mean, we are so fortunate to live in the country that we live in. I know it's been hard to realize that in the last year and a half, but we are the, we are very fortunate because there are countries that if you make it known that you're a Christian, you can be killed or put in prison. And that day may come to us, but it's still a little ways off, maybe six or seven months, but <laughs> it, it may come at one point. But we have this freedom that others don't have. Yet even in those countries where the threat is death for being a Christian, God is building His kingdom. People are becoming kingdom citizens even at the face of death. We should never look at the opposition that we face or the opposition in this world and think that the work of God will suffer. It won't. God will build His kingdom and nothing can prevent it from happening. Remember that. When you get frustrated with our local government or our federal government, when you get frustrated with who people keep voting into office, remember, God's kingdom will be established and nothing can stop it. That's His promise and His plan. 
From the growth of the kingdom, Jesus illustrates the influence of the kingdom. That's the parable of the leaven. Verses 20 and 21. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. Now some have a problem with this one too, by the way. They think this is evil as well because the use of leaven is sometimes a symbol for sin. It is used in Exodus as a symbol for sin in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Exodus chapter 12, verse 15 said, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Jesus taught in Matthew 16, 6, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-9, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then again in Galatians 5, 9, he said a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So for that reason, people see this as a warning of invading wickedness and evil influence among God's people. Well, it's true that we need to guard against those things. It is true that we need to guard against hypocrisy and immorality and malice and wickedness and things like that. But to say that leaven in this parable is a symbol of sin is to say that sin invaded the kingdom of God. And if the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, is the rule and reign, the sovereign rule of reign of God over the entire entire world, then you would have to say that this parable is saying, even in the rule and reign of God over everything, sin is going to pervade it. And that doesn't work either. So to be clear, three-fourths of the time leaven is mentioned in the Bible, it's used as a symbol of sin. Which means that one quarter of the time that it's used, it's either neutral or it has a positive meaning, not a negative meaning. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 7 and and Leviticus 23 and Amos chapter 4, leaven is used in offerings made to God. In fact, it's required. So it can't be a symbol of sin. You don't include sin in your offering to God. When Jesus told the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought he was talking about bread. Don't buy bread from Pharisees. It's not good. Buy it from a non-Pharisee. It's better bread. It's fresher. They didn't understand it until Jesus explained to them that he was speaking about hypocrisy. The Jews, for the Jews, for the most part, they used leaven on a regular basis. They didn't always eat unleavened bread. They ate bread with yeast in it, leavening. Caused it to rise. They did that, listen, 51 weeks out of the year. It's on one week out of the year, they ate unleavened bread. And it was a reminder of the exodus. It was a reminder of the purging of sin from their life. But the rest of the year, they saw it as a good thing. As Jesus uses this symbol, he's using it to speak of the internal power and influence 
that the kingdom message will have on the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. It's going to pervade the world. Just as yeast is kneaded into dough and it permeates the entire loaf, so does the gospel, the good news, permeate our world. This is the, the influence and the impact of the gospel on the world. At the time Jesus uses the illustration, the influence of the gospel was relatively insignificant. It didn't make it out of the borders of Israel yet, and even among in within the borders of Israel, as Jesus is speaking at that moment, it was limited to a small group of people. The majority of the people had rejected it. So it was a, a great source of encouragement to say, listen, this is going to permeate the world. And that would have been hard to understand at that point. In fact, it would have been hard to understand until Pentecost, when the apostles were indwelt with the Holy Spirit and began to preach, and thousands of people came to saving faith. And then the gospel spreads like wildfire across Asia Minor. Then it all starts to make sense. We must never be worried that the gospel is ineffective. It will always accomplish what God purposes. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. God has promised when my word goes out, it will do what I want it to do. It will, it will penetrate the hearts I want it to penetrate. It will sink deep into the minds of the people I want it to sink into. It will influence the world in the way I want it to influence. It will accomplish my purpose. In the two parables, Jesus is assuring the disciples and us that the growth of the kingdom and the influence of the gospel is a supernatural work that will be accomplished. We are laborers, and we're to work hard, and we're to use our gifts, and we're to sit and reason with people. We are to plead with people to come to saving faith. But the results are not up to us. And they've already been assured by God. God's going to build His kingdom. There's not one citizen that is slated to be part of the kingdom that's not going to make it. And, by the way, there's nobody going to be in the kingdom that's not supposed to be there. That's the parable of the wedding feast, when the man walks in and sees somebody not wedding, wearing a wedding garment and has them thrown out. We live in a world that is growing in his antagonism against God. We're growing, we have a I see a growing antagonism against the church. A growing antagonism against Christ. And we feel, probably for most of us, something that we've probably never felt to this degree in our lifetime, but we feel opposition from our own government, our own world, our own society. But don't lose heart. It doesn't matter. The opposition can't stop it. If opposition could stop Christianity, it would have been stopped in the first century in Israel. It would have never made it out. It would have stopped when Jesus was crucified. 
It would have stopped when the apostles were murdered. It would have stopped when Rome tried to stamp out Christianity to destroy the scriptures. It would have stopped when other nations tried to kill Christians and imprison them to keep them from spreading the gospel. But nothing can stop it. We live in a world that wants us to think that they're in control. God is in control. And God will build His kingdom. And He will continue to add all the kingdom citizens that He wants and nothing will prevent that. At the proper time, the Father will turn to His Son and say, it's time to go get your kingdom. It's time to go establish the kingdom. To come back to this world and wipe out all of the enemies and set up His kingdom and then take all of the kingdom citizens, all those who came to Christ, and have them populate the, the kingdom. And we get to rule and reign with Him. No earthly government will stop God from building His kingdom. In fact, you want to read about it, you can read about it in Revelation 19. All the governments of the world will gather together to try to stop God, and God will just wipe them out. He's going to make it very convenient. They're all going to gather in one spot, and God says, perfect. (laughs) No opposition from man can keep God from building His kingdom. No virus, no war, no persecution, no apostasy will keep God from building His kingdom. No principality or power or rulers of the darkness of this world or spiritual wickedness in high places. No demonic force can prevent God from building His kingdom. Nothing present, nothing to come can stop God from building His kingdom. And if you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord, believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you're a citizen of the kingdom. And you get to come back with Him one day and rule and reign. If you've not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, at this moment in time, you're not part of the kingdom. And it's not just that you're not part of the kingdom, you're actually in opposition to the kingdom. You're on the wrong side. But the good news is you can become a member of the kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom, by confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you'll be saved. God is calling. Now is the time to become kingdom citizens. If you don't know Christ, please, please come talk to me or someone else that you know here so we can show you from the Scripture how you can become a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's the winning side. It's the only side that wins. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful to know that your kingdom is going to be established and nothing can stop it. Father, as we face opposition, as it grows in our world, as it seems to get more traction in our own society, Father, we are encouraged by the fact that your kingdom will grow and you will add all the kingdom citizens that you desire. All that have been written in your book before the foundation of the world. Father, thank you for such grace and mercy. Thank you, Father, that you... Adopt us to be part of your kingdom apart from any worth of our own, any intrinsic value. But Father, you are building your kingdom according to your plan. Lord, may we honor you 
May we see the shortness of our of the time and the greatness of the kingdom. And Father, continue to give the gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear about King Jesus. And Father, may you be glorified as more and more sons and daughters are added to the kingdom. Father, let us give you praise. Help us to be encouraged by the fact that your kingdom will not be stopped. And Father, for anyone that is here that doesn't know you, you know every heart. I pray that you'll open up their eyes. You'll draw them into your kingdom. And they may be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.